Kia ora everyone, nao mai haramai, and thank you for joining me on podcast number 20 of Takupu or The Word, with me your host, Christopher Von Roy, today on the 23rd of March 2022. Oh wow, we've got an amazing guest. Um, Ted Howard is an absolute genius, and I have been following him for some years. Uh, he lives in Kaikoura with his wife, Elsa, and they both do conservation work and work with birds such as the Banda Dotteril and yeah, work which has just been recognized by both of them receiving the Queen's Service Medal last year or for this year, 2022. And yeah, so he's been super busy and so I was really, really lucky that he gave me some time um, for us to discuss everything from autism to life extension to cellular automata and quantum mechanics. It's a beautiful conversation for which, admittedly, I had to have Google open and I had to search some things he was talking about because, yeah, he lives in a different world in his mind, Ted. Um, it's also really interesting how he talks about autism and how it benefits him in reading and understanding the world with having less filters than, let's say, mainstream individuals would have. Um, I had so many questions that we've um, chopped the podcast into two, so we're going to release episode one this week and then episode two next week. So yeah, thanks for tuning in and enjoy. Let's welcome Ted Howard to the stage. Hi, Ted, can you hear me? Loud and clear, Chris. Oh, excellent, excellent. How are you doing? Pretty good. Yeah? Are you in Kaikoura? I am indeed, sitting in my favorite recliner chair and sort of staring out the window at the trees and the breeze. And oh, I beautiful. I can see fog, but I should be able to see Manukau. I could see Manukau earlier, but uh, the cloud oh. base has come down again. Yeah, yeah. Has it been raining today? Yeah, we had about... We had just over an inch of rain at between 2 and 3 a.m. this morning. So we've had a little over ah, so just on two inches today so far. Uh, do you measure it? Do you have a little yeah. measuring? Yeah, I've yeah, got, got a little uh, weather station, a Davy nice. weather station too, mounted up above the roof on the edge of the house. <laughs> you can check the pressure and everything. Yep. Have you gone and seen your birds yet today? No, no. Um, well, I often what I did that. was, well, this morning I got out because we, in these conditions, when you have low cloud and fog, um, there's a, at this time of year when the birds and the chicks are fledging, um, yeah. it's quite common for them to crash land. So I went out, rather than going oh. out to the colony, I went out and did a drive around town uh, and checked on all the places where birds normally crash land. I didn't find any, but someone, when I went to the hub, because we've got this little shed yeah. not far from the dock, just across the road from the high school, where we get people to bring crash-landed birds in. And there was a bird in there. So I weighed oh, and measured wow. it and banded it and left it for the next volunteer to take and release. Oh, so you just give them a little a place of reprieve, basically. Yeah, we pick them up off the road, save them from the uh, cats and the cars, and, yeah. and then release them back out to sea. Amazing. And what is what is the one bird that you set these 
nesting stations. Is it the daughter? Is it a daughter row? Yeah. But, well, okay. So the bird I was just talking about was the Hutton Shearwater, which is oh, yeah. Kaikoura's own mutton bird. But yeah. my wife started a project on the banded dotterels about eight yeah. years ago. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I did quite a bit of work with both lots of birds. So that was eight years ago. And that's, so what are you doing with the birds? Um, well, with the banded dotterels, it, it started out, well, I bought Ailsa a camera. And she yeah. was um, just sitting on the beach down at South Bay. And she was one, she just sort of had this random sort of thought, oh, I wonder if there's any birds around. She looked around and here was this bird, like about five meters away, just sitting there looking at her. So she sat and looked at it, and um, it was clearly nesting there. And when she moved towards it, it sort of went away and did its broken wing dance and yeah. tried to take her away from the nest, but she spied the eggs there. And so she went back there day after day, and sort of the bird got used to her, and the bird would just sit on its eggs. And, and after a while, she noticed that one morning the bird wasn't there. Yeah. And, yeah, the nest had been predated by something yeah so then she got that got her interested in what was going on so uh, she hooked me in at that stage and i started deploying trail cams on nests and um so we decided to look and see what was actually going on and initially what we found was most of the eggs were disappearing to hedgehogs oh wow so i set up a trapping network along the south bay beach and i got 18 hedgehogs in the first three weeks and I've been getting one or two a month ever since. Um, and so after I did that, um, the birds had a really good season. They got, uh, I think we had about 24 chicks fledged that oh, third, wow. the third year of the study. Um, but then we started noticing that the cats were, now that there were good numbers of birds and chicks around, the cats started yeah. taking an interest. Yeah. Yeah. So then cats became the critical issue. Um, Can't really trap them, can you? Well, you have to live capture trap them. And you only ever get one shot at a live capture trap with a cat. So Because they're too clever. They're very, very smart. Yeah. Whatever you do, they will work out a way around it. (laughs) You'll catch them once in a live capture trap. But if if you determine that they're... A domestic cat, and you take it back to the owner. Yeah, you will never capture that trap, that cat again in a trap. Um, yeah, you may see it on the beach, but it it will stay we'll a big meter away from that trap. It will go round and round it, but it will not go in it. Incredible. Are there a lot of feral cats out there? There are. Um, yeah. Last year, I like I did some trapping well away from the houses down sort of the southwestern end of the beach down towards the cage restaurant and um, yeah took three feral cats off the beach in a fortnight so where what do you do with them do you just drive them away i uh, dispose of them yeah okay to so all the cat lovers out there i don't have a problem with that but i suppose yeah no one takes care of them anyway and they're more of a pest than anything else they were clearly not anyone's pet cat like yeah i've had pet cats and pet dogs i've still got a pet dog um yeah but i i've had animal pets my whole life including ferrets 
In fact, one yeah. of my wow. dearest pet was a ferret. Um, yeah, that was an amazing one. But um, yeah, so you I let it in the house. Oh, it used to live live with me. Like it curl up around oh. my neck and just go to sleep. People used to wonder Amazing. me wearing wearing this fur collar, and then the fur collar would head up and look at them. Fashion item, yeah, <laughs> so good. Yeah, Musty was real neat. Um, so yeah, look, I understand people love their pets, and the last thing I want to do is hurt anyone's pet. But we have to get rid of the feral cats out of the environment because our native birds just have no defence against them. Yeah, like we're in environments where birds and cat and mammalian predators which are mostly scent hunters have evolved yeah. together the birds have evolved low smelling oils and typically birds that are in mammalian threat environments so they might have one or two oils that are reasonably detectable reasonably smelly like birds use oils to make their feathers waterproof so they have to produce oils yeah um, but the New Zealand birds tend to have, they can have anything up to a dozen or 20 oils that are really quite wow, smelly. Wow, I didn't, never knew that, yeah. So, um, yeah, our, our native birds are very easy for the scent hunters, the mammals, to localise because they didn't evolve, like they only evolved with avian predation. No, yeah. So the avian predation is all by eyesight. So our birds are really cryptic. They're really hard to see. And that's part of the problem for them when it comes to people. People, Most people can be standing two meters away from a bird and not see it. Wow. And so what that was basically avian predation that they were... Yeah, they evolved for avian predation. So they've, they've got amazing yeah. you know, cryptic devices to not be seen. Um, yeah, like nests are really hard to see as well. Yeah. If you're just walking on the beach. Well, most people would not see the nest, would would not see the eggs. They would walk on them purely yeah. by accident. Yeah. They'd have no idea of what they were doing, the damage they were causing. And so Ted, when you were walking upon or when was it Elsa was walking upon this nest and you said the bro broken wing dance, is that a distraction method to get yeah. Whatever predator away from the nest, it does this sort of "I'm injured, come yep. and get me." Yep. Wow. They well, like dotrels. Well, you know, there's two major classes of strategy that birds can adopt. You get colonial nesters, or you get territorial nesters. Yeah. And so the dotrels are territorial nesters. So they they have a territory that they defend against other dotrels and yeah. against anything else too that might be a threat. So when something big, like they're stroppy little things, they'll take on birds that are 10 times their size and Amazing. dive at them. But if something comes along that's like a thousand times their size, then they'll try and lead it away. Like they'll be going along and they'll have a, a wing dragging along the ground behind wow. them. Like they've got a broken wing and they'll lead you off. And about half of them are really quite sneaky because they lead you straight to the neighbor's nest. <laughs> if you're going to eat someone, eat him, not me. <laughs> That's so funny. Um, and how do they behave seasonally? Do they do they migrate the band of dotterel? Yeah, um, yeah. Well, they've got so many. Like the behaviours change so much over the over the season. Like they show up here, uh, sort of late July, and they'll do their initial territorial. Uh, stuff they'll set up who's boss of particular areas and then they'll so the males basically start that off and then they team up 
with the yell, and then the both of them defend their territory, and then the the male will do the scraping. So he'll dig a little hole in the in the gravels and try and entice his girl to lay an egg there, and like she'll yeah. turn those up half a dozen usually before she decides that one's good enough. <laughs> I yeah. Um, but yeah, so they'll go through. They'll they'll do up to four re-nests, like. They if they they lose the nest for any reason and like they lose nests to storms all the time and to floods because yeah. they live in river valleys as well. It's the other place they inhabit as well as beaches. So yeah. they've got this ability to re-nest, but typically they'll only do one or two. Like if they if they succeed, if they they incubate for a month and then they raise the chick for another well, they protect the chick for another two months. Basically, like they don't yeah. feed the chicks. The chicks are self-feeding from the moment they come out of the, the egg. Wow! But they are protected, so the parents keep them warm and yeah. protect them from other birds. And they have they talk to each other and they have stay still calls or runaway calls. And, can you uh, recognise them? Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. Oh, wow! So you can speak dotterel. <laughs> I can understand dotterel when it's spoken. I can't speak it. <laughs> Yeah, but yeah, so yeah, they're really neat little things, uh, the dots. But yeah, so then I mean, after yeah. they get rid of their, like after they've had their chicks leave, um, yeah, they then go through a molt, and then they have a a month or two, uh, well, yeah, anything up to two months where they just sort of put on weight, and then they fly off somewhere, most of them. Um, and this, like, we already knew one of our birds that we banded was spotted at Omaha, just up north of Auckland, just south of. Oh Maine. wow! Um, so we knew it had been going there, and it it it's been up there for about a month now. Uh, so it's the third year it's been seen in exactly the same space at Omaha. So it breeds in exactly the same place on the breach, just south of Kaikoura, and then it goes up to Omaha, and it's in the same place on the beach up there. So it's got these two homes that it flies between. Um. But this year we had, well, oh, this season, I should say. The last season we had a guy, Luke Eberhardt, come out from Germany um, yeah. and do some work with us. Um, and this year Luke came back, or well, this season, like late last year, Luke came back out. And we put satellite trackers on two birds and GPS trackers on 10 others. And so... This year we've got two birds that we've been able to track, and one has gone from here up and up to um, Port Waikato. So it's yeah, just on the south edge of um, Port Waikato, and the other one is up, and it's on a sandbar just inside the Kaipara Harbour. So it seems to have been stable up there for a few weeks now. So it looks like that's where those two guys are going to spend their uh, their winter and then hopefully we'll get the tracker gear back off them again like those two they've got the little like they're amazing little units they're somewhat less than a centimeter square they've got a little solar cell on the top and then a tiny little aerial which is ultra thin steel that sticks out of oh, about 10 centimeters behind it but they just give a ping up and the satellite picks it up um, three times a day but yeah, it's amazing little piece of tech. 1.6 grams, including the harness weight. Um, 
So, and then the other the other ten are just running standard GPS units. But yeah, they they'll do a recording about once an hour as to where they are. But we have to catch them again next season, and you can only catch them when they're nesting. Yeah. So it gets very interesting. Are you still there, Chris? Or I lost you. Oh, wait. Now, can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you now. Yep. I heard you the whole time through, Ted. Oh, um, good. I, was saying, I was saying the equipment must be quite expensive. That's why you. you... <laughs> yeah, it's uh, like it's all funded out of Germany. Like these individual trackers are about, uh, the satellite trackers, I think, are about six grand each. Like wow, six, just over six thousand dollars for one point six grams. Like that, that's worse than gold. Yeah, that's nice. so who funds that out of Germany? Is it an academic institution or? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Which yeah, the one? Max, the Max Planck. Max, ah, Max Planck. Yeah. Nice. I used to live like twenty minutes from that in Munich. Oh, I mean, they've got, yeah, that's where I grew up. All right. So that used to be our playground. München. München, yeah. Have you been there? No, no. I. It's on my to-do list to go to Germany because one of my sets of grandparents came from Lückenwalde, which is just about an hour's drive south of Berlin. What's it called? A little place uh, now. Lüneburg? Lückenwalde, I think. Lückenwalde. Uh, L-E-U-C-H-E-N-W-A-L-D-E. Ah, -E -E. oh, Yeah. So that's where my other, so I grew up in Berlin and Munich, so I've got connections to both of those ah. spots. Yeah, my father's from Berlin originally, so that's where we moved to. And then I finished all my schooling in Munich. So uh -huh. um, I was going to ask, was the work that you did with the banded dotterel, you and I, is that what you got your nomination for the Queen's Service Medal for? Um. Yeah, in a, in a, I guess it is in a kind of way. Um, like we had no idea who nominated us until quite some time after the event. But yeah, um, but yeah, it, it it was out of an event that we organised around the Dotrels, um that the nomination came from. But they did right. quite a bit of background checking on us both because like before we got into Dotrels, we were both involved in. We've both been involved in Forest and Bird for a long time, but we'd also both been involved as trustees on Art and Shearwaters Trust. So we were both heavily right. involved in Shearwaters before we got involved in Dotterels. So it was kind of like conservation in general, conservation work. That must have come as a surprise that you got when you got that. Uh, very much so. Um, yeah. Neither of us quite believed it. <laughs> Do you get a phone call from the Queen? No, you get an email from. Uh, a bureaucracy in Wellington. <laughs> Funny. <laughs> Not even I, a letter. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, there's all sorts of things that are still to happen. Like we're to be presented with the medals in person at Government uh, House. Uh, and that's coming up course, in about next week's time. Yeah. Oh, amazing. So who's so, going to do that? Jacinda? Or the probably the British no, The Governor-General, yeah. Oh, the Governor-General, yeah. Amazing. So they fly you up there and then you get to stay there a couple well, of days. We have to take ourselves up there and uh, yeah, then we'll get 
present it, and, then, and uh, then we can go and do our own thing. Yeah. And then you'll get the medal finally. Do you have a yeah. place you're going to put it on your mantelpiece? <laughs> <laughs> I haven't thought that far ahead. Or is that something that you should be you wear on your on a jacket? Don't you? That's yeah. the way. It, I actually looked at it. It looks quite stylish. Um, Ted, so how did this interest in, uh, I guess, zoology and conservation come about? I think that's what you studied that, didn't you, a while back up in Auckland? Yeah, well, I did, but it sort of predates that by a, a long trip. Like, I've learned some things about myself even in the last few years that explain quite a few things about why my life is more than a little bit different and unusual. Yeah. Um, I always knew I was different, but um, it wasn't until I got friends with a psychologist who lived like three doors away. Yeah. And she had an autistic son. And uh, I'm not sure if it was me or Elsa. I, th I think Elsa might have said uh, something about, oh, Ted's very like your son. And she looked at me and said, <laughs> oh, did you know he's autistic? He's clearly <laughs> autistic. <laughs> That's going, great. Oh, it explains a few things. You know, I've lived with this condition for sixty years, and now someone tells me I've got it. Yeah. <laughs> it, used, it wasn't used, didn't used to be a condition you could have. No. So, so is yeah. that you get fixated? Yeah, you like you like focusing on. Objects. I can. Yeah. Well, one of the things about autism, one of the aspects of it, is that like most people have subconscious level filters that filter the amount of information coming in. So what they get to experience is a very simplified version of whatever reality is. Yeah. Um, autistics tend to not have anywhere nearly as many, as many filters. So we are constantly bombarded with massive flows of information and we have to learn techniques of coping with it. Yeah. Um, so we're sort of at risk of drowning in a sea of information constantly. Um, and it's like people are so complex that it's almost impossible to make any sense about what another human being is doing. Yeah. Um, whereas for most people, those intuitions are handled by a level of neural network that doesn't develop in us. Yeah. So uh, the upside of that is we have all of that neural hardware is available to apply to any problem space. It's not pre-wired to any particular problem space. Yeah. And so one of the things, well, I had quite a number of things that were difficult about me when I was a child. Like um, my feet laid out at about 60 degrees and uh, so walking was difficult yeah uh, when I was about three years old I got hit from behind by a ram and it tossed oh, me over a seven wire fence and they laid me out in the bed for six weeks and my backbone sort of recovered but it meant I could never sit comfortably with a straight back um, yeah yeah, I couldn't, like at primary school, I could never sit cross-legged on a mat. I was just in agony if I tried. Um, so what was it, like scoliosis or something that you had at the back? It was curved. Well, the, the, uh, like the L4-5 vertebra, I think, are severely damaged. Um, yeah. They just don't bend like they do in most people. But, like, 
I learned to adapt to it and to work yeah. with it, but I couldn't do the things that teachers expected me to be able to do. Um, and one of the other things I had was I was tongue-tied. So I had this yeah. flap of skin under my tongue that would not allow the tongue to come up. So I could not make a sound like a t or a d. And wow. so my speech was only intelligible to my immediate family. And it wasn't until I was about five years old and I went in for a tonsil operation that the surgeon said, oh, this kid's tongue-tied. I can fix that. And he just went snip. And wow. so I came out of my tonsil operation with a tongue that moved. So then I had to learn to make all of these noises that I couldn't make. How old were you, Ted? About five at that point. Wow. So you would have yeah, already learned how to speak. and. Well, I had this experience as a five-year-old of being in the room and having listening to my teacher say to my parents, oh, this kid is retarded and will always be a problem on society. Oh, Jesus. And I thought, eh, doesn't quite sound right. Well, like, I know I've got problems, but I don't think I'm retarded. Um, but anyway, so it gave me quite some delight a few, well, probably 20 years later, or 18 years later when I, you know, had the Reader's Digest used to put out these quizzes. And, and yeah. Yeah, I'd do those and they say, you know, if you did this quiz in under two minutes, you might be a Mensa candidate. You can write to this address. So, I did one of them and it took me like 16 seconds. I'm sorry. Oh, well, I'll try this. So I wrote... <laughs> 16 seconds under two minutes. Amazing. <laughs> so I rode off and I, I got, yeah, I went up to Auckland and did this test under psychological supervision. They admitted me into Mensa and, yeah, well, I got to know the psychologist that did it. And I, I was talking to Bob one day and he said, well, what was my IQ? He said, well, I'm not supposed to tell you. And he said, I can't tell you anyway. Because he said, the test I administered only goes up, only gives useful results up to 160. He said, you will pass that. Oh, my <laughs> Lord. Dad. Jesus. How old were you when this got revealed? 23? Yeah, about 22, 23. And so had you already gone to university or? Yeah, I'd gone to Waikato University. Um, yeah. And I went. They let me straight into second year biochem. So I was the youngest wow. kid in the biochem class by about two years because I was really interested in biochem. And yeah. I was fascinated by it. And I got really lucky because Peter Molan, the lecturer there, um, Peter had this teaching style where he just bombarded you with information and all of his exams were open book. And that just suited me Amazing. perfectly. Yeah, yeah. I could just pull in vast amounts of information assemble the strategic relationships between the information, not have to worry about remembering stupid bloody names for stupid chemicals. I could look them up in the book if I needed them. Um, yeah. But I could just worry about the strategic relationships and what were the systems doing. And yeah, I totally fascinated by it and loved it and did really well in Peter's exams because like I said, they were all open book. Um, but then in the third year, they wouldn't let me do any more biochem. Um, there wasn't anything else that really took my interest, and I sort of went off the rails about that year. Um, yeah. So I ended up dropping out of uni and going and starting a fishing business, and I'd been doing that for a couple of years, and I got quite involved in the politics of fishing, a local fishing association. I Where was I? the secretary of it. And um, I got into this argument with the then director of fisheries management, one Brian Cunningham, and I could be 
fairly persistent, like autistic scan. Uh, yeah. I severely pissed Brian off because he was trying to get a series of measures through, and I could see no useful reason for it. No. I was asking questions he didn't want to answer, and yeah. in the end, he uh, after we'd been sort of at it for about 15 minutes, he said, well, what the fuck would you know, Howard? You're just a fucking dropout. Sit the fuck down and shut the fuck up. And I thought, yeah. right, you <laughs> prick. <laughs> so the next year, I went back to Auckland University, uh, did all the marine, second and third year marine ecology courses, finished my degree, and was essentially a thorn in his side till the day he died. But... Um, <laughs> I already had quite an interest in like in wildlife because my uncle used to be a wildlife ranger, my dad's baby brother, who was yeah. probably closer to me in age than he was to dad. Um, so yeah, Pete was like a an elder brother to me in many respects, and he used to call in, and we used to do lots of things with wildlife, and that was really fun. So um, yeah, I had this history of hunting and looking at what's actually out there and yeah getting into conserving the things that needed conserving and getting rid of the things that needed to be got rid of yeah became reasonably good at both set up uh at a place called waitakaruru which is at the bottom end of the firth of thames so, oh, so you were in the north that you weren't in kaikoura back then no 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 back then i was up in like I was born in Papakura and went to Waikato University initially yeah. in Auckland University. Um, yeah, it was a bit of an accident coming to Kaikoura. I came down here to install a computer system into Pacifica Fisheries, which had <laughs> been bought. It used to be Virgo Fisheries here in Kaikoura, and then Pacifica yeah. Kegs bought it. And um, I put a computer system in there. And I came down to give the operator, Lynette Berman, a day's training. And like Lynette now owns and runs uh, Encounter, like Dolphin Encounter, Albatross Encounter at Kaikoura. Yeah. Um, but back then she was the operator at Pacifica. Uh, so I gave her the day's training. There had been a couple who used to farm up at Miranda that I knew quite well, Graham and Diane yeah. Stevenson. So I came, I went around to visit them. They'd moved to Kaikoura just happened to be Diane's birthday and she happened to have a few friends around, one of whom is now my wife. Uh, Elsa, amazing. I met Elsa, yeah, random chance. So yeah, Elsa <laughs> and I had a three-year long-distance romance where I'd fly 172 down, Cessna 172 I'd hire from the uh, Harrick Euro Club of Thames and fly down for the weekend and then fly back home. Um, Sort of what do you mean, fly an airplane or what? Yeah, fly what? Yeah, yeah. Oh, I was a keen, pretty keen pilot. I, I used to oh, wow. <laughs> so you borrowed an airplane to come and fly and see Elsa. That's amazing. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, well, it used to give me a really good view of, uh, like, the state of the environment as I flew down. Yeah. You'd always take a slightly different path, and you'd fly down fairly low level coming down the ocean. So you'd get a really good look at the schools of Kawai and mackerel and things. So you, yeah, I had a, a fairly good idea in my head as to what was going on in fisheries. So, yeah, yeah. And you still do that now, Ted? No, I have. I, I haven't. Um, haven't flown for about, well, probably about fourteen years now. No, I meant the fishing. I, fishing side of things. Well, I'm still 
involved a lot in fisheries management. I don't actually fish myself anymore because I had a a brush with melanoma 12 years ago. I, yeah. Yeah. Well, 14 years ago, I got my first melanoma diagnosis. And then 12 years ago, I had an oncologist tell me I could be dead in six weeks and had a 2% chance of living two years. Jesus. And that I should go home and get my affairs in order. So I went home and sort of freaked out for about 24 hours and then settled into reading. And I think I probably read something close to 10,000 abstracts and probably 100 full papers over the following three weeks. About oncology. Uh, yeah. About cancer, yeah. Yeah. And cancer survival and, uh, yeah, and the biochemistry of cancers and just all sorts of different stuff. Um, anything that looked like it might have I decided before I started, I would take on any strategy that had some reasonable evidence that it might work and that if it failed, I wouldn't leave my family bankrupt. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I ended up going strict vegan, high dose vitamin C, eliminated all refined sugars from diet. So for initially, I, that first sort of year or so that I was getting rid of all tumors, I was raw organic vegan um, yeah and i was on 15 grams of vitamin c twice a day and five grams every hour in between so running about 80 85 grams a day of, of vitamin c and how are you getting that in the butt were you intravenously doing this no no, no, no it was just oral yeah so, um glass of warm water and just dissolve whatever dose I was going to have in a glass of warm, lukewarm water, and wow. scale it down. Tasted foul, but bad taste didn't last long. No, you just get used to it. Well, so was Linus Pauling? Did he um, what he wrote? Linus Pauling yeah. was one of my heroes from my yeah. early days because, like, as a bike, he's the only chemist ever to get two Nobel prizes. And yeah, Watson and Crick were dead scared that Pauling was going to focus on DNA. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah. So well, he'd written on vitamin spent, C, yeah. Yeah, the fact that he spent 30 years of his life uh, dedicated to trying to determine what the relationship between vitamin C and cancer was, um, like, strongly put me on that path. Um, yeah. But then I found, like, there's been some really good work done in New Zealand, like... Um, Marguerite Visses, who's attached to the Otago Medical School and the Christchurch yep. campus, she's done some really good uh, work. But it's work that's almost impossible to get funded um, yeah. because there's no money to be made from no. vitamin C. It's cheap and it's easy. And I would say if we had vitamin C, like if everybody had a free allocation of 20 grams of vitamin C and people were encouraged to take it uh, in two doses a day, um, we could reduce the load on our medical system by a full order of magnitude. Wow. Yeah. I haven't had a sick day in 12 years. Wow. And so back then when you got the diagnosis, there wouldn't have been, there was, I mean, what, there was no treatment. There is no, no. They, no. I, well, I was told that the the particular variant of melanoma that I had was the most aggressive form known, uh, a spindle cell yep. melanoma, and uh, that 
there weren't any therapies for it at that point in time. Uh, any of the chemotherapies only seemed to increase oh. its activity. Uh, so, yeah, that wasn't a good, wasn't on my life plan to be put no. in that situation, should I say. Yeah. So it got my and, full attention. Yeah. And so because of that diagnosis of melanoma, you now can't go out on the boat because of the sun. Is that right? No, 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 no. I just don't eat fish. So there's oh, a okay. lot of things <laughs> right. me, me going out and okay. catching fish because I'm course. <laughs> Gotcha. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> um, so now you're obviously not raw vegan anymore. No, you, I'm about you, half raw. Yeah. Half raw. Yeah. And Elsa, she's obviously would have no. accommodated that diet. Yeah. Or does she eat meat? No, she still has meat occasionally. But she yeah. probably have meat two or three times a week. Well, maybe four times a week. But and not in, large amounts of meat. In terms of um, the tumor progression or regression, like when do you have to go and get um, do oh, scans? I I went on this diet. And it was tough. Like, I lost 21 kilos in 12 weeks. Shit. Um, so at the end of that 12 weeks, I decided, you know, it, it was hard for me. Um, yeah. I, I've got a really high metabolism. I eat a lot. Did you eat a lot of meat? Did you eat a lot of meat before that? Yeah, I, I had vast amounts of sugar and quite yeah. a bit of meat. Um, but, yeah, I, I was probably order, eating of the order of... Uh, Five six hundred grams of sugar a day, just as refined sugar. As what, like sodas or chocolate? Uh, chocolate, everything. Fudge, like I could make up a two cups of fudge, you know, two cups of sugar with a bit yeah. of cocoa, and make a plate of fudge, and I could sit down and eat it all in twenty minutes. <laughs> oh my god! So you were eating a lot of sugar, yeah. Yeah. Oh, I, yeah. When I'd go into a programming session, like if I was going to spend ten hours at the keyboard. Yeah, I'd just load up two or three plates of fudge, and I'd just be sit there, and I'd just be breathing through the sugar, brain food. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yep. Wow. And then from that, so did you? Were you overweight? No, you had like a fast metabolism. I had a fast metabolism that kept me light when I was doing reasonable exercise, fishing. Uh, when yeah. I got completely sedentary, I did put on a bit of weight. I'd got up to ninety kilos. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I, I got to 91 kilos, and after I went on this diet, I dropped down to 70, which was a bit on the light side for a six-foot-two frame. So I'm 186. Yeah, so yeah. When, you were, when you started the raw vegan, like, what would your meal look like? What would you eat during the day? I'd, do, I'd have three or four juices. So I'd do yeah. uh, two apples, three carrots. Oh, sorry, one apple, three carrots, and a beetroot put them through yeah. the juicer, put that juice into a blender and then put as much spinach as I could into the blender uh, and still have it liquid enough to get down my throat. Um, Obviously it didn't taste very good either. No. Well, what, <laughs> We've been quite bland. Yeah. yeah. But, um, yeah, so that I do those sort of four times a day I try and do. Yeah. And then, oh, just whatever uh i just ate vast amounts of pretty much you know something nuts. of everything nuts but fruit you, you name it you wouldn't uh, have, you wouldn't have eaten bread though no no no, no. well because it's got sugar in it 
No, 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 bread doesn't have to have sugar. You can do okay. sourdoughs and yeah. you, can, um, you, you can use yeast to just um, raise the flour the... without put, having a sugar starter. Yeah. So, yeah, initially I got myself a SAMAP hand mill. So I was hand grinding. So I was having bread, but I was hand grinding the flour yeah, so buy, buy the organic wheat and, and hand grind it, but it used to take about forty minutes to grind enough Jesus. to yeah. make a loaf of bread. And then I got this little German pico grain mill, little electric thing, and that's great because I can get enough to make a loaf of bread. Um, you know, not in, not having to grind it. I don't grind it. No, I just turn the switch. <laughs> and it goes, Amazing. Um, yeah. And so no butter, no cheese. Nope. No. Nope. Wow. That would have been a real adjustment psychologically as well. Oh, <laughs> every food I liked, like for four months, I didn't eat anything that tasted even vaguely palatable. Yeah, it uh, basically was just you saw yourself as a. I, I was. Yeah. I was the object of my own experimentation. Like yeah. survival was everything. I I need to fill in a blank in the picture. Like, um, part of what's driven me since 1974 was like as I completed my undergrad biochem it became clear to me that like if you look at life from an evolutionary perspective and you just look at cellular life itself the default mode for cellular life is indefinite life so if yeah. you consider our own cell line it's an unbroken line back to the first cell some three point whatever billion years old so yeah. from that perspective, you know, the default mode is indefinite life. But we have this you know, haplodiploid life cycle and we have germline and somatic line cells. So they're all the same genetic material, but they have different switches. Um, yeah. And so I knew it. The default setting had to be indefinite life, but then I knew there had to be a lot of complex switching that went into determining the apparent age of what we were. But there had to be clocking mechanisms in there. And that yeah. once we understood those, we would be able to indefinitely extend lifespans. So yeah. uh, it was about November 74 that it became clear to me that indefinite life extension was possible and would at some point happen. I was a little over-optimistic as to when it was likely to happen, but I now think it's most likely about 2035. Um, yeah. So the question then became, well, what sort of social, political, and technical institutions do you need to have in place to give potentially very long-lived organisms a reasonable probability of living a very long time with reasonable degrees of freedom? And that sent me down a path of exploring strategic systems from Polit political systems. Well, no, well, strategic, like political systems, financial systems, military systems, educational systems are all particular embodiments of strategies and strategic systems in particular domain spaces. So yeah. I was more interested in the abstract, the next level up abstraction of the space of all possible strategies and 
how was when she started looking at life from that space the mechanisms that drive evolution become really quite interesting and it it's funny um like after i i left uni i I focused pretty hard on just surviving in the fishing game for for a bit. It took a bit. Um, you have to learn a lot. You have to make a lot of things work in practice. Because um, I was, you know, running a. I was kind of interesting. I went to. I went to Rollo's Marine and to Rapper Strait in Hamilton, and they had a V8 motor sitting there. Yeah. And I had forty dollars to my name, so I said to them. Oh, I give you forty bucks if you hold that for me for a week. And I said, okay. They've been sitting there for a while. Um, I said, if you know, if I haven't come back with the balance of the money in a week, you can take it. So then I went to a finance company in Thames and said, well, look, I've got a V8 motor, but I need to get a hull built out at Raglan, on Marco Marine. Will you finance me the hull? They said, yep. And then I went to a different finance company and said, well, look, I'm getting a hull built. Will you finance me the motor? Wow. <laughs> what was the difference? Hull. What was the amount the motor cost? Oh, they were about two grand each. Oh, yeah. you gave them $40. Yeah. Um, That's trusting. So, both of them um, came through with the money. I had to sign lots of bit of paper, and I just hoped that the two finance companies never actually talked to each other. And <laughs> I managed to um, pay them both back and uh, survive. Yeah, but wow, uh, it was just from the hull. Oh, I had the hull in the motor. Yeah. No, the hull, your fishing hull, was the how you managed to pay them back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Wow. So, um, yeah, so that's. That took quite a bit of energy and focus and time, but um, I also was interested. Like I had a lot of open questions when I left university, so I had to. I decided I would try and bring myself up to speed a bit with math. So I got Einstein's books and started yeah. reading them, and I'm going, eh, okay, can't handle this math. Okay, so then I got hold of Hilbert. And I started reading Hilbert. No, nah, can't handle this math. So then I went back to Ryman. And, oh, okay, I can make sense of Ryman. So <laughs> once I could make sense of Ryman, then that let me make sense of Hilbert. And then I was finally able to follow the math right through to um, Einstein. So I sort of taught myself all that math in the evenings after I'd finished fishing. And then a friend of mine loaned me a couple copy of Doug Hofstadter's Good Leisure Bark. Oh, yeah. And, uh, okay, I have to understand what the hell uh, Girdle's getting into here. And that took me almost nine months of reading after work. And sometimes I would read the same paragraph for a fortnight trying to figure out what the hell is he getting into here and how can I verify all of this? So, yeah, after nine months, I had verified both of Gödel's incompleteness theorems, and I was happy with everything that Doug had written in Gödel Escherbach. Did you have anyone to bounce ideas off or any sort of mentor at this time? 
Oh, there were a few interesting people around. I, uh, there's a, a guy ones that could make sense of Gödel Escherbach. No. Um, well, there's a guy in uh, Thames who used to look after the um, museum there, uh, Alistair yeah. Wright. And Alistair had spent three years walking around India and Sri Lanka uh, with Arthur Clarke and Bucky Fuller. So wow. Alistair was a really interesting guy to go and talk to. Alistair and I used to have some good conversations. So I, I would go and uh, I, I met Alistair through Mensa. But yeah, I'd, yeah. I would go and uh, have some conversations with Alistair. Um, and he could help me through some of those ideas. I, I had yeah. a few other friends in Auckland that I could talk talk about with. Such yeah. So yeah, that, that got kind of interesting. And then I went to Auckland University, that was in 78, and like John Morton was just an amazing guy to have as a, a mentor. Um, he's the only true classical scholar I've ever met. I think he spoke about 14 languages and he could read wow. 40. Jesus. Um, yeah, we had this one guy, an American lecturer, who was doing cybernetics. I can't even remember his name now. But he used to mark really hard. Like, he did, he'd take a full mark off if anyone made a spelling mistake. And I, by that stage, I was a couple of years older than most of the other students. Uh, so I was elected by the students onto the, you know, the faculty student body. Um, so John and I devised this... Um, Spelling test of 40 commonly misspelled words. <laughs> um, well, John suggested it, and I put it together. And uh, we gave it to all the faculty. And this guy <laughs> who was uh, taking a full mark off for every spelling mistake got two out of 40. <laughs> Amazing. John got 40 out of 40. <laughs> the next best guy got 34 out of 40. Wow. So were these um, commonly misspelled, were they scientific nomenclature yeah, yeah. or was it? Yeah, yeah. From, yeah. From okay. biological. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Brilliant. <laughs> but um, that was the year that um, Richard Dawkins published The Selfish Gene. Okay, yeah. And I was down in the university bookshop one afternoon and I saw this book standing there. And I, I'd gone in, I think about two o'clock. And I picked this thing up and I started reading it. And next thing, this guy's tapping me on the shoulder. He said, are you going to buy that? I want to close the shop. <laughs> Look at me, watch. Oh, shit, it's five o'clock. Okay, yep, I'm buying it. <laughs> Amazing. I climbed on my bike, cycled back up to Mount Eden where I was flatting. And uh, I finished it off at about 10 o'clock. And I yeah. grabbed some food, decided i got to read that again. So... I got about 11 o'clock, I started again, read through till about three, and I found I was reading the same thing over and over again. Uh, I need some sleep. So I got about three hours sleep and then got back into it and skipped the morning lectures and finished it off by lunchtime. Uh, so it's the only book I've ever read cover to cover twice, twice. in one day. <laughs> Amazing. But like the difference between that and Doug Hofstadter's book, you know, Doug Hofstadter's book took me nine months to read. Yeah, it was going into Girdle's work, which was seriously abstract. Um, like Richard put together a lot of really good information in an accessible way. Yeah, 
but he didn't do a lot of abstraction with it. No, uh, he left me gift. to do that. Yeah, so he, his gift was putting really good information out there. So I made a lot of abstractions from that book that Richard still doesn't agree with me are valid. We've argued about it twice. <laughs> In person? In person. <laughs> wow, that's so good. Can you um, give me one example of an abstraction that he doesn't agree with? Well, uh, the, the one in the later chapters, I think it's about chapter 12, where he's looking at the work um, that uh, Robert Axelrod uh, did yeah. on basic strategy. So to me, reading that, it was clear that it was just immediately obvious that every new level of evolved complexity is based upon a new level of cooperation. But you need a particular type of environment to make cooperation stable. That environment has to have a greater level of threat coming from the outside the population than from other members within the population, so that it is always advantageous to for the members of the population to cooperate with each other against the external threat than it yeah. is to defect against each other. So if you have an environment like that, you can stabilize cooperation without having to have secondary sets, sets of strategies to detect and remove cheats. So you've got the time to build in those secondary sets of cheat detection and cheat removal strategies, which are required for long-term survival in different contexts. But so long as you've got that overriding external threat, you can maintain the cooperation. Uh, yeah. And that, like to me, evolution of complexity only makes sense when you view it through the lens that every new level of complexity is built upon a new level of cooperation and requires the maintenance of that cooperation for its ongoing survival. That is my fundamental problem with capitalism. Yeah. Like, um, capitalism is great from the perspective that it use, it distributes agency. Uh, like yeah. Socialism with its centralization uh, is subject to multiple failure modalities. Like it, it's a very inefficient use of resources. But we have both individual and social aspects. So what we need are systems that promote decentralization, promote distributed cognition, distributed agency, at the same time as they coordinate agency and coordinate cooperation at each new yeah. level. And so... Decentralized socialism. Well, socialism as defined in, in the dictionary is ownership of property in common, but that actually can't work. You, you have to distribute ownership, but at the same time, you have to have responsibility. So every distributed agent has to realize that they are a necessary part of the cooperative and they have responsibilities as such. So providing you maintain both of those aspects. Like, it's not a simple, like capitalism's too simple to function, socialism's too simple to function. You've got to have something that's more complex that acknowledges both of those realities. It's like 
it's like this insane dichotomy that's in politics between conservatism and liberalism. Like, yeah, we all have to have both necessarily. And the big question mark is always what level of which is appropriate to any particular context. And so you always have to have a conservative base that maintains a sort of safe, central, strategic complex. But then you've got to have the liberals out at the boundaries exploring the boundary regions, both for opportunities and for threats. Yeah. Um, because if those threats just come in hard against the central core without any buffer region, the system's going to fail. Yeah. So, yeah, it's part of what I liked about... Um, Dawkins. Oh, uh, well, Richard's gone. He's gone down a really hard capitalist line. Yeah, and, and I was going to ask you what causes agency in capitalism. Is it the free market? What is? Uh, I, I guess. You, well, you're how would you define it? Consciousness. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, it's a, like. There is nothing simple about consciousness. There's nothing simple about human level agency. Um, like I, th I think the minimum, at minimum, you need a stack of at least fifteen levels of complex adaptive systems, each one built upon the basis of the previous level in order to be able to get basic level human agency. Okay. Um, that's about as simple as I've been able to get it. To so what would, be the, what would be the first level of that? Food and water or what is? No, no it's molecular. It's, okay. Yeah, like le level one is... Energy. Well, no, well, it's information stored in RNA. That's where that's where I'm. Yeah, I'm reasonably confident. Like we'll never know for certain, but because there were no cameras back when life first evolved, but I'm I'm reasonably confident, just given the general alkaline chemistry, of of cellular life, um, that life initially evolved. Uh, it was sort of RNA-based information in a white smoker environment where the hydrogen ions for metabolism, like the energy source was hydrogen coming in this alkaline hydrothermal vent system. Yeah. That, that seems the most likely sort of RK, source. RK bacteria. Yeah. Yeah. So... When I read a critique you wrote of panspermia um, that argued against the fact that we would have had, you know, these cells come from outer space or that life would have evolved out of space. And you mentioned the convergent evolution of Hox genes or that we need these Hox genes in order for, um, for more complex life to evolve. You can't get, it, can't get past single cellular life with, without yeah. multiple doublings of chromosomes and you need yeah. the Hox, something like the Hox complex to be able to get segmentation and you can't get complexity without segmentation. And so was that you were arguing about these 15 basic steps, right? 
about to create yeah, agency like, is that you Hux, couldn't Hux get this can, multi- yeah like Hox is already at about level five or six um, yeah yeah you, you, you're already into extremely complex like you, you have to start with with rna and like by the time you get to cells you're already at three and then you've got to get to uh from eukary- uh, prokaryotic to eukaryotic cells so that's yeah. level four and then you've got to get hox so it's level five at the very least in terms of levels of cooperative systems um and like all you've got then is like half a dozen cells that are sort of segmenting um yeah you've got so a long way the, to go before you get to us yeah i was gonna say where's consciousness in the brain that is not even in the first 15. no look our brains are just so bloody complex and like evolution doesn't neatly simplify and categorize things evolution is all about things that happen to work in particular contexts and happen to survive in those contexts and it's like i think about evolution as random search across the space of all possible systems um yeah and there's always going to be nearer neighbors that are more likely to be uh, encountered than ones that are further away um but so yeah when you're looking at any thing it's not going to be neat and simple it's going to be messy in ways where there's just hacks that happen to work in practice but you think well why the hell would anything possibly do it that way it just randomly happened that way that's just how it was so, you know yeah um, but yeah we're full of those things and the amazing thing is they work yeah. <laughs> at least as well as they do um but yeah like when you get into like neural networks and you look at how neural networks actually work like yeah if you have an unbiased un you know completely open neural network and you're trying to do gradient descent on it to train it to something like you've got to give it something over half a million instances of experience in order to get it to be able to make any sort of reliable sense of things well yeah like nothing's going to survive that length of time um <laughs> so you have to bias your networks in order to make them useful so we come with all sorts of biases and one of the other things we found about neural networks is that um they train much better if they're sparse like if there's big gaps and, and you don't have them too finely gradated gradated you, you, like there has to be a, a reasonably coarse setting uh, in, in the way you distribute the functionality and so yeah we have we have this other problem in that reality often presents us with the requirement to make very rapid decisions in order to survive like if you've got a charging saber-toothed cat coming at you if you're sitting there trying to calculate the vectors of the cat's approach <laughs> everyone else has just died for cover <laughs> yeah you won't survive very long no so you have to have systems that will switch to very fast reaction and yeah. the fastest reaction possible is 
with the simplest categorization possible. And the simplest possible categorization is a binary. So the simplest way of looking at the world for rapid response is in terms of binaries like true, false, or right, wrong, or good, bad, or hot, cold, or light, dark. But yeah. Nothing is light. Uh, and nothing is dark. There's always photons floating around. But we have these very simple models, and they're often useful. Um, so there's this very strong bias in our neural networks for simplicity, because it's fast. Yeah. And so we are strongly biased to put things into simple categories, like you're either a friend or a foe, you're with me or against me. Uh, and it's often... so people tend to fall into this trap of thinking that everything has a necessary cause. And the mathematics of quantum mechanics doesn't seem to support that notion. Uh, quantum mechanics seems to indicate that everything influences everything else, but to different degrees. And for many classes of computation, you can essentially ignore just about everything and focus on a very small subset of things, and that will give you very reliable results most of the time. Um, but that doesn't mean that everything isn't actually having an influence. Um, yeah. So what seems to be the case is that everything influences everything else, but there is a degree of randomness involved in just about everything. And yeah. when it comes to understanding consciousness, you need to be able to hold these two ideas simultaneously. One is that every level of structure requires constraints to enable it to have form. So there have to be things which are, to a good, useful approximation, true about that system, that they're really reliable to enable that system to operate reliably. Um, and there have to be aspects of relationships to other systems which are uncertain. And they're uncertain. We know there's uncertainty for all sorts of reasons which can be entirely deterministic. Um, Give me an example. Well, we can't possibly know of a photon that's outside of our light cone. Yeah. Uh, so a photon's going to arrive from outside of our light cone. We can't possibly have known about that photon. So that's something yeah. which could be considered entirely deterministic in a sense. Um, but still random but, for us. But still yeah. random for us. We, we can't possibly know about it ahead of time. Yeah. All we can have is probabilities. Um, but then they do appear to be in higher classes of systems for which there really is randomness. Um, but like the mathematics of quantum mechanics doesn't, it hints at it, it doesn't prove it. I suspect it is in fact fundamental. Um, if Wolfram's conjectures about the Rouliad are anywhere near accurate, and I, I suspect they are, they are a part of the space that is the systems that we inhabit. They're part of the matrix, but they're not the entirety of the matrix. I think there's more to be done. I like Garrett Lissy's um, approach, and I 
think there's probably a, a mathematical convergence between the two, but I haven't. It's purely conjecture on my part. I haven't done yeah. anything to try and prove it. What between him and Wolfram? Yeah. 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 Like Lissy's conjecture is that the the structure of the particle relationships in the standard model are a function of the most complex symmetry known to mathematics, a thing called the E8 Lie group. And I kind of love it because the idea that the simplest thing known to particle physics can be a function of the most complex thing known to mathematics. <laughs> kind of puts a stopper in any idea of simplicity. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, yeah. Um, so, yeah, you've got these layers of systems that have to have these sets of conditions to enable, like, they have to have patterns, they have to follow something approximating rules, and they have to have reliability if they're to survive, if they're to be selected for. But then they have to be able to interact with things that are from the perspective of that system unknowable. So one of the things when you're dealing with uh, strategy, um, when you look at how different agents interact in strategic systems, um, if an agent is conscious of where its own limits are, then it is likely to signal that in some way to an adversary and the adversary will then take advantage of it because the adversary then knows, oh, I only need to go this far and then he's going to give up. Yeah. Um, so there is a lot of incentive within strategic systems to hide your own limits, to hide how far, to not even be aware yourself as to how far you're willing to go. Yeah. Um, and yeah, that's a big part of game theory and tournament species. And we have spent some significant fraction of our evolutionary history as a tournament species, even as we're also a cooperative species. So we have both aspects. So what's the difference between the tournament and the game theory? So it's Nash versus Well in a tournament species you have to have like if two individuals are fighting, say, over a mating rights for a harem of females, let's say, yeah. you get two males that are very nearly equally matched. Like, it's not in the interests of either of those males to go out into an all-out confrontation where both become seriously interest, injured and yeah. some other lesser male comes in and takes over and gets the, the females. Yeah. So there is a very strong evolutionary incentive for there to be, like you battle to a particular point that is below your damage threshold, and yeah. then you back off. So, but... Now how do you identify that in the, like... <laughs> a group, a group of lions or monkeys, yeah, yeah. how would they... So. The thing is that the individuals themselves can't know it. No, because exactly. The moment yeah. they know it, they can display it, and then they, they'll lose the tournament because then the other one will know that all he has to do is go past that point. So 
it has to be a hidden aspect. So it be, becomes what's known in sort of computer parlance as an oracle. So it's something, yeah. it's a black box that produces an output that the output is useful, even if it's entirely random. So the output is sufficiently constrained to be useful, but within yeah. that, it's random. So yeah, we have multiple levels of these black box systems, these oracles. Within like unknown unknowns. Yeah. yeah. Well, I or known of, unknowns. They're, they're kind of, well, they're hidden unknowns. Hidden unknowns. Yeah. Um, yeah. But like, I kind of reserve the term unknown unknowns for for things that are actually out there in the real world that uh, you know we don't even know that we don't know that we don't know them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so maybe we shouldn't use the term at all. No, no. But um, yeah, so you get these. We have multiple levels of systems within us that have these degrees of separation from external inputs. Like one of the early theories about human awareness was that we were trained from birth by our upbringing. But actually, when you look at what goes on, when, when you actually start mapping neural activity in infants and in adults, something over 80% of the neural activity is internally generated. It's yeah. not externally generated. So the model is initially internally generated and then it gets kind of synchronized to the outside world by the incoming information from the senses. Yeah. But it's not actually generated from the senses. It's an internal model, internally generated and entrained. Yeah, so I guess that's where the control bit comes from. Otherwise, like morality and ethics would just be paying lip service to something that's intrinsically... Well, to me, morality and ethics are approximations to something. Like, when you get to the sorts of complexity that we are, and, like, we are a species that has this degree of model-making capacity and degree of language using capacity that is unparalleled in yeah. the organic systems today. So it takes us a very long time to develop. So we have to be in a very cooperative environment in order to be able to learn sufficient safely to be able to survive in the wider environment. So we have these very cooperative systems, but cooperation is always vulnerable to exploitation by cheating strategies. Yeah. So every level of cooperation requires this evolving ecosystem of cheat detection and cheat removal strategies. And so once you get into higher orders of social systems, then morality is a necessary set of cheat detection and cheat mitigation strategies. That's one yeah. way of viewing it. Now, from the perspective of the survival of the system, it doesn't matter 
what the story is that propagates the behaviors. All that matters is the behaviors. So it doesn't matter whether the, the behaviors are propagated by a story relating to God or gods or a story relating to games theory or a story relating to theory of moves or complex systems or whatever, just so long as the behaviors are propagated. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's all that evolution cares about. What does the, what's the phenotypic expression in reality? Mm. And so when it comes to like at our level of existence, the external threat like this that you were talking about before and like the saber-toothed tiger doesn't exist anymore. And I guess, does that mean when we're at the level of like nation states and is that why you need this continuous agitation between countries or you need a bad country in, in order for these, you know, the oh, cheat modes oh. to get detected within society? No, I think... I think there is a sense in which the very idea of nation states as they're currently conceived is an oversimplification of something and that oversimplification actually contains existential level risk within it. Yeah. Um, there are, like we, as I was talking about earlier, we have this very strong tendency necessary inbuilt bias in our neural networks to simplify things but that means we tend to over we frequently tend to oversimplify the things that are in fact irreducibly complex there are some things out there that are actually deeply complex they need to be acknowledged as such we will not survive unless we acknowledge them as such so climate change yeah well climate change is like the least risky of the existential threats that I have been able to think about. Um, but I, I have managed to send, like, my wife and both of my children are on anxiety medication, probably as a result of me talking freely about the existential <laughs> threats. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. So I have had to learn to... Not be quite so free with my conjectures because most people do not have well, the to... background that I have to have the confidence that they are, in fact, overcomable. Or, or so, the lack of connection to their own neurons that would fire these anxious thoughts into their brain. I was going to tell you, don't be worried. I'm also on anxiety medication, so you can, <laughs> you can let, let it fly, Ted. No, no, um, I, I was going to say. Other Something that's more <laughs> exactly well, you, we can put a disclaimer. I was gonna yeah. say, if climate change is the least, then what is it? Nuclear material? Oh, look I, look, I won't go into them because, like, I know a lot of people react with a sort Badly of catatonic anxiety. So, look, but are they I, the result I... of the, the necessity of having external, like you said, in order for evolution and discuss, you know picking out these cheat codes, we need to have an external threat to exist. Is that part of evolution? And that's inevitable. But if it weren't war, if it weren't climate change, if it weren't cancer, 
it would be something else because we require that extra external enemy in order for us to well, evolve. There is, yeah. Okay, so if we're taking a big picture view about the evolution of self-aware intelligence, and then yes, there is a very narrow balance between having sufficient stability to be able to maintain the sorts of complexity that we are and having sufficient in external threat to be able to emerge the new levels of cooperation that are required for long-term survival. Um, yeah. Because we do actually live in a very dangerous and it appears totally indifferent universe. Um, yeah. So I believe those threats can all be mitigated. I believe there is no possibility of any market-based system in and of its own internal incentive structures ever effectively mitigating those risks. The, like, in order to be able to mitigate the risks, we need some very large-scale technology. The only way to produce that large-scale technology is with very advanced automation. Yeah. Any, like, the deployment of automation at that level within a competitive market system means that one agent ends up with all the power and everyone else gets eliminated and then that agent has will unknowingly destroy the conditions that actually allow it to survive um, yeah so but capitalism would produce that as well as would communism that it would be one they both, entity both, right yeah they like to my mind, from a strategic view, they're identically, they're almost identical systems, but yeah. they're sort of orthogonal to each other. Yeah. Um, but it's the same, they're the same strategic setup, orthogonally embedded in a system. Um, so I don't really see them as any different. Um, no. They're both overly simplistic and dangerous. Yeah. Um, like, Capitalism has going for it the distributed agency, which is required. Uh, communism has gained for it the, um, the requirement for maintaining the social cohesion of the group, which is required. But you yeah. need to have both together. You can't have them separate. Yeah. So neither system actually works. So on its own, yeah. On its own. Uh, we I, need something else. There is plenty of, um, how shall we put it? There's, there's plenty of potential strategic territory that can be inhabited that will deliver. Um, yeah. But the existing systems, there are some notions that need to be changed that are deeply embedded in existing systems. Uh, which will be very difficult for some minds to even see, let alone see the necessity of changing. Yeah. Yeah. I read in one of, you wrote one of your essays on utopia and dystopia, 
you read something about how moving forward we need this we need cooperation on a large scale but at the same time we also need the free markets you know a market-based economy to complement even though it seems like those two are at complete odds we need cooperation other. and distributed agency that doesn't like i would not have used i doubt i would have used the term free markets but they said market-based system i think you didn't say so well said something yeah yeah well like markets markets are a really effective tool for distributing scarce resources to where they're needed yeah provided two conditions are met and one condition is that the scarcity is in fact genuine and two is that all agents have some reasonable access to degrees of value which are in embodied in the exchange token we call money like money is a myth yeah. it, and like all good myths say it only works when people believe it yeah. so I was listening to um, an interview between uh, Lex Friedman and Elon Musk uh, yeah I listened to that one yeah, yeah. and uh, as Elon says you know you're trapped on a desert island you can't eat bitcoin um, doesn't matter if you've got a billion dollars in your you can't eat it um and he's dead right and that's been my my argument for 40 odd years that you know when we have all of these goods and services sitting there as potential and they're not getting to where they need it because of a lack of number uh, why would we allow that to continue um yeah it's not that difficult to give everyone on the planet a reasonable standard of living. No. Um, that doesn't mean you need to constrain the top guys. You, you don't have to put a top limit on other than there are... It would make sense. Dynamic, well, no, you, you just say you can't do it here on the planet. You want to have more than this, yeah. you need to go off planet. But, yeah, <laughs> I like are, that. There are energy limits to what you can do on the planet, and there are material yeah. limits to what you can do on the planet. Although the, there's not really much in the way of material limits, like the Earth is a bloody big ball of mass. There's yeah more than enough mass to do anything you could conceivably want to do on a planet here, um, but there are thermodynamic limits to the amount of energy uh, and the, yeah. the amount of space. Uh, well, we couldn't so, have ten billion people living like Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos. Put it that way. Um, right, we can't well, have all of them having 300 meter super yachts chugging out well, tons not and all. tons of oil, unless it's all run on some if it's all solar power, renewing, uh, yeah. Well, then it's different, yeah. Yeah, I suppose I didn't think about that. I get I, this is the one thing, like Ted, about in terms of when you keep mentioning agency, what determines on a psychological level. You know, when you go move beyond those 15 strata and you get to the psychosocial being called a human, when capitalism creates agency, what do you mean by that? What does that mean? Is that greed? Is that how people want to amass? What is, can you define that term for me? Okay. I, in that context. You, you use, the, you use the, the words capitalism creates agency. I, that's not, like, those are not my words. Okay. Um, 
<laughs> agency exists in systems. Agency is the, the ability of a system to influence its surroundings. So okay. to the degree promotes that, then promotes rather than creates. Well, to the degree that a system can ha have a degree of independence from its surroundings, to the degree that we can make choices in our lives that give us the ability to think and to set goals independent of the things that come at us, then to that degree, we have agencies. And it's, okay. it, it can never be complete. There must always be degrees of influence, but it can be, we can have much higher levels of agency than most people have in practice because most people are fairly well controlled by um, meme plexes and um, inputs you... that they're, they're not fully conscious of. Like, give me an example. Well, belief structures they've never questioned. Okay, like religion, celebrity. Yeah. All of those, yeah. yeah. Fashion, um, yeah. advertising, all those things that they've never really thought about. Okay, yeah. What did you call them? Meme plexes. Yeah. Yeah, it's from Dawkins. Yeah. You know, that was one of the things I loved about Dawkins was yeah. applying the idea of gene as a unit of physically transmissible information to yeah. the I, the realm of ideas as being a, a meme being a unit of transmissible behavioral information. Yeah. And when you take it to the next level, to the unit of transmissible strategic information, it becomes, there's no name for that yet. Um, what, where it's deliberately used to influence behavior, you mean? Now it's more of a random thing. Look, I have been consciously designing and releasing meme plexes into the wild for over 40 years. I've been consciously doing it since late 78. Give me an example. Years. I've been designing little stories, stopping and picking up every hitchhiker that I could find, telling them the stories. I picking, love it. Letting them go and then just waiting to see what happens. <laughs> I love it. Amazing. Can you give us one of the stories? And how did you come about designing it? Is this to fundamentally influence behavior and thought in people? So go, like back, a... go back to where I started. When I, when I realized in uh, 74 that indefinite life extension was possible, Yeah. the, the question that occurred that same day, and the question that has dominated my thinking ever since is what sorts of social, political, and technical institutions, strategic structures is another way of thinking about it, are required if potentially long-lived agents are to actually have a reasonable probability of living a very long time. Yeah. So that's it. 
that's my driver. Like Elon wants to go to Mars. I want to live a long time. Yeah. So everything that I've done in a sense has come out of that. Yeah. So the fact that I'm having this conversation with you and that it might propagate some ideas out there into the wider environment is part of that. Yeah. And this conversation could be thought of in that sense as something designed to get people to question the assumptions they're not even aware that are assumptions. They just take yeah. them as reality. But actually, they're not reality. They're assumptions. Yeah. Um, I was going to say, I, I'm not sure if I got this right, but you said something about if you look back at all, like all of cellular life is kind of related. Even though cells die, they're still related to each other. And it took a while for these stop codons to be put into place so that cells didn't live forever. Like you said, something about like the default is to for okay. immortal cell lines to exist, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, like, yeah. yeah. If you if you want to get rapidly evolving complexity, like if you look back through, okay. So if you go back and look at the very old rocks, you can see that bacteria were around for well over a billion years before the first prokaryotic cell emerged. And prokaryotics, although probably around for close to 2 billion years. And then yeah. prokaryotic cells were around for the best part of a billion years before the first complex multicellular life emerged. So what's known as the Cambrian explosion seems to have been a gene duplication event that led to the Hox complex, which allowed for segmentation in complex organisms. And everything that's derived from that um, has come out of that. Now, if you have very long-lived organisms in a population, then it is a severe drag on the population in terms of genetic change. Like if you get one dominant male, for example, and it, he's just naturally that much bigger and stronger than everything else by just random chance, and it might take 10,000 generations before someone bigger and stronger comes along and can dethrone him, um, yeah. then like evolution in that system is going to be really slow. Um, so one of the things that happened with complex organisms was all these signaling systems um, that are, are necessary for complexity is that all those signaling systems have to cooperate. And if any of them don't, if any of those cells that are cooperating and like the signaling between cells breaks down and one cell decides it needs to duplicate, whereas it doesn't, in reality, um, then that cell line duplicating is that's the definition of a cancer. Yeah. Any any individual cell line going competitive in what should be a cooperative environment. That's that's the definition of cancer. So there are an infinite class, potentially infinite class of things that can lead to signaling breakdown. So one of the techniques to 
that evolution stumbled upon to allow these complex genes, these Hox gene complexes, to actually survive long enough to do useful things uh, was telomeres. So yeah. telomeres essentially put a limit on the number of duplications that any cell line can do. So while it imposes a limit on the life of the individual, it also imposes a limit on the size that a tumor can grow to. So it enables the survival of uh, any form of, you know, it, it greatly increases the probability of survival of cancer. And this is one of those things that I'm not sure how, let's just say that there are classes of events that happen periodically on this planet where um, the probability of cancer goes up significantly. So yeah. things without it tend to die. Yeah. So you have to have cancer limiting mechanisms. So and, are there cancer cells that are still around from like, let's say the 1950s, like at Lawrence Livermore National Laboratories that have just been growing? Well, or, there's healer cells. Yeah. Yeah. And so in, in those cells, though, then the telomeres haven't imposed the restriction of, or is that still coming? Is that what you're saying? No, no. no. Well, this, when you look at what goes on, like there has to be a mechanism built into the genes yeah. to periodically reset the telomere length. So in the germline, that happens like... Uh, Pretty close to uh, pretty close to fertilization. Yeah. So it gets reset, and then that reset mechanism. Uh, what is? I'm trying to think of the name. It's something like. Uh, it's a Japanese name. Is it? Yeah. Yeah, does it happen? Up. Does it happen every time at every stage of replication? Then it, it happens at at every yeah. stage of development of of every complex. Um, yeah. Sexual organism. Yeah. Yeah. Yamanaka. That's his name. Yamanaka. Yamanaka. Yeah. Yamanaka factors. I'm trying to think of the right name. Um, yeah. So the, we've identified what those factors are. We can induce them. Like Dolly the sheep was an example of cloning, resetting Yamanaka factors, and just taking skin cells and getting things to grow on. So we know how to do that. Um, Biology does it in one particular set of contexts. Um, but so there is a sense in which we couldn't have evolved to this level of complexity in the time that's been available on the planet for evolution had we not had bodies that aged. Like we okay. would have still been simple bacteria. Yeah. But because we had the aging mechanisms, because our bodies had life limits, that enabled us to get to this point. But we've now got to the point where we can not only take over and direct the evolution of our bodies, but we actually require, like we're dealing with such levels of complexity now that we require whole new, well, we've basically got to stay alive in, in order to try and keep up with what's happening around us to make sense of it. Um, yeah. Because you can't retrain any, everyone again from scratch. It just takes too long. 
they, they get older and older before they're useful. Uh, once they, <laughs> you have them doing shit, then they have no idea why they're doing what they're doing for like 30 or 40 years. Yeah. Before they suddenly start to tweak. Oh, crap, why did that? <laughs> <laughs> um, that's why we got AI, haven't we? Well, do you want to be the tool of AI as a bacteria in our gut is a tool? Well, depends how you want to look at it, doesn't it? Like talking. Well, we become like the bacteria in our gut once AI takes over. Well, that's one possible way of doing it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, but but then there is the there there is the alternate view, in that um, I'm not sure who it was. Might have been Medawa who suggested that. Perhaps uh, a human being is a bacteria's way of getting around an aerobic environment. <laughs> I love it. Peter Menowar said that. He's an amazing guy. Oh, man. Um, um, okay, so I'm going to have to stop us now, unfortunately, Ted. Yep. Uh, this, I've gotten into one hundredth of what I wanted to talk to you about. I was um, afraid that would happen. <laughs> sentient intelligence value argument was the next thing I wanted to talk about. But I was going to say this. If you have some time, like, next week, could I perchance, if yeah. Elsa says, yeah, could we do it again? Yeah, yeah. I've, I've, always I've made note know. of where we are. Yeah. Oh, man. Thank you so much, Ted. That would be brilliant. Could we do same time? Well, we'll talk about it. Yeah, we'll, talk, we'll sort it out, yeah. Let's I, see. I, Brilliant. We were going to say 40 minutes, and I've done an hour and 40. (laughs) (laughs) Amazing. Thanks so much, Ted, and we'll talk soon. Okay. Cheers, Chris. You legend. Thanks, man. Bye. Bye. Kia ora, kia ora, everyone, and Namihi. Thanks for listening to episode number 20 of Tekupu. Um, I think you can agree that it was an entertaining discussion, uh, one that for which we unfortunately didn't have enough time to finish. So we're going to have part two up next week. And yeah, I hope you guys liked Ted. I put his information onto the link in the show notes so you can contact him directly either through his blog or on facebook and yeah once again super huge thanks to ted for giving me the time and yeah enlightening us with his incredible thought experiments and amazing insight into the world yeah so we'll have part two coming up next week i've also got dr andrea triton coming on the podcast soon Uh, Andrea is a member of FACT, the fight against conspiracy theories, and she is a pivotal component in teaching conspiracy theories and how to deal with them through reasonable and rational research at high school level all throughout New Zealand. She's writing the curriculum for it. So, Kapai, Andrea, and I look forward to having you on the podcast soon. Uh, For everyone else, I hope you have a great rest of the week. Namihi, much love, maui ora, and stay strong. Love you, peeps.